If you're new with us or if you're joining us online, I'm so glad that you are. You, brought, you, you caught us on a great day. We are starting our first, our, our first day in the book of Psalms. We are doing a series called Songs of the Summer, and we're going to be reading through the entire book of Psalms uh, in the course of 90 days throughout the summer. And I believe this. I believe that the Psalms um, are meant to saturate our minds and our hearts. They're meant to fill us up, to fill us with, with God's word. The Psalms are a collection of ancient hymns. They're over 3,000 years old, and uh, they're separated into five books. And the Psalms uh, is poetry. It's poetry that is put to music. And, and the poetry of the Psalms, the ancient Hebrews, didn't write poetry like we do today. When we write poetry today, we, we, we focus a lot on rhyme and on cadence and on, on rhythm. But, but the ancient Hebrews, when they wrote poetry, they focused more on parallelism. And they would compare and contrast two different ideas Hebrew poetry was all about parallelism, but these books, all of these psalms were originally set to music. They were meant to be sung. Music, I think everybody in this room would agree, has a way of making, uh, it, it makes its way into the deepest parts of us, doesn't it? it when, we are, when we're at work or we're driving in the car or uh, we're at home and we're, we're just doing things around the house, sometimes a song will just pop into your head, right? And how many of you are surprised when you, re you remember the lyrics to a song from years and years ago because it has seeped down into your soul, right? Today is June 6th, and, and um, every June 6th, uh, I think of the song, uh, was the dark of the moon on the 6th of June with a Kenworth hauling logs. <laughs> Cab over P with a reefer. I think it's E.W. Kenyon wrote the song called, like, Convoy or something like that. But, but music has a way... Does anybody else know that song? I think I'm preaching to the right crowd uh, when it comes to that song. Uh, music has a way of, of, of seeping into our hearts. And melodies invoke the imagination and lyrics. They saturate our minds and they provoke the strongest emotions. Music provokes the strongest joy and the deepest sorrow. And we see that when we read the book of Psalms. These songs all were sung by Jesus. These were songs sung by Jesus. I, I would have loved to, to see, I wish there were more depictions of Jesus just kind of walking around singing a song because it would, it would be one of these songs probably. It would be one of the things that saturated his heart. And we see that when he's on the cross, uh, Psalms 22 and Psalm 35 just pour out of his mouth because he was just steeped in the Psalms. He was saturated with the word of God. My kids, my little one-year-old Vivian, she can't really speak much. She knows how to say daddy. She can say ball. She can say blues clues and a few other important things to her. She can say water. Uh, but but she, she doesn't say much, but she says this really clearly. She'll walk around the house going deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a deep and wide. And she doesn't know it, but she's singing the word of God. It's Ephesians, uh, I believe it's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. The, the word of God in the form of music has saturated her mind, and, and, it, and now it's flowing out of her. This is what the Psalms are meant to do. They're meant to saturate your hearts so they seep out in a melody, and they seep out in, in, with this emotion. And um, I memorize music lyrics much easier uh, than written words because music is meant to do that. Music is meant to get into our, in fact, I, I'm ashamed to say this, but I probably have more Disney songs memorized than I do scripture. 
I, 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 I'm, I'm getting better. I'm learning more and more. I'm trying to find new techniques and new ways to memorize scripture. But, but music, maybe if I put the scripture to Disney melodies, maybe that would help me. But the Psalms, <laughs> the Psalms point us to Jesus. And within these 150 Psalms is the summary of, of our biblical history. Within the Psalms, you see creation, there's the exodus, there's the law, there's the tabernacle, there's exile and the death, the resurrection of Jesus. All of these themes are found within the book of Psalms when we read Psalms. But here's one of the most important features of the book of Psalms. One of the most important features is that the book of, these books of Psalms, the Psalter is quoted uh, by Jesus more than any other book in the Bible. Jesus quotes the Psalms more than any other book in the Bible. He would have memorized these books and sung these songs as a child. When Jesus entered Jerusalem during the last week of his life and, and, and he's going to clear out the temple, he quotes from Psalm 8. He says, out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength. In Psalms 118 verse 22, Jesus is referring to himself when he quotes this, he says, the stone, uh, Jesus, he, he quotes Psalm 118 when he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then when Jesus is, is being uh, betrayed by Judas, he quotes Psalm 41, verse 9. He says, even my closest friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Doesn't it bring you just a little bit of comfort to know that Jesus knows what betrayal feels like? That he knows what every emotion, he has gone through every sorrow. He has gone through every high and every load so that he can relate with you. He knows what you're feeling. He can relate with your deepest sorrow, with your grief. He lost a dear friend Lazarus and, and he wept over him. He was betrayed by friends. He's experienced the highest joy. He knows what we feel and he can empathize with us. We serve a God who empathizes with us. He doesn't pity us. And he doesn't just pity us, but he can actually empathize. He knows how we feel. And then again, when Jesus is on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Psalms, however, were not just quoted by Jesus. The Psalms are all about Jesus. The Psalms are all about Jesus. They are pointing us to him. They are all about Jesus. And today we're going to start with the very first Psalm. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1 exists as an introduction to the Psalms. And it describes uh, the two ways. There's two paths that every one of us has the option of taking. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. God blesses the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked leads to destruction is what the Psalm says. And we're going to read it together from the top. Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. But not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. I find it so wonderful that the very first word that we see in the book of Psalms is blessed. It's 
blessing. The book of Psalms is a book of blessing for those who listen to its wisdom. It's fitting uh, for the first word of the entire Psalms to be blessed. This, this word blessing, it refers to happiness and joy. It refers to the favor of God. It refers to his abundance. God deeply desires to bless you. God deeply desires to put his favor on you, to, 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 to fill your life with his abundance and his joy. He desires to bless you. Did you know that everything that God does in your life is for the purpose of blessing you? That everything that God does in your life is for the purpose of blessing you. Even discipline is meant to bless us. We see in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. As we read in this psalm, there are two paths that we can choose from. We can choose the way of the wicked, or we choose the way of righteousness. One of them leads to God's blessing, and the other leads to destruction. The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. I want God's blessing in my life. How many of you want God's blessing in your life? How many of you want the favor of God, his abundance, his joy? The psalmist, uh, he mentions two things that God blesses. In order to receive God's blessing, he, he blesses these two things in, in this verse, or excuse me, in this chapter, Psalms 1. You can write this down if you're taking notes. The first one is this, I am blessed when I stay away from evil. I'm blessed when I stay away from evil. The, the, the first verse starts by introducing us to three verbs and to three characters. We see the verbs walk, sit, and stand. And these three characters are wicked, sinners, and mockers. And at first glance, these, these words might seem synonymous with one another. They might seem like they mean the same thing. But they actually, both, uh, both sets of words, they display this gradual descent into evil. It's a gradual descent. Sin is a gradual descent. Walking away from the Lord and, and, and disobeying God is a gradual descent. First, it, you walk alongside it. You see how close to the edge you can get. I'm not going to stop there, but I, I'm just going to take a peek. I'm just going to take a glance. I'm going to see how close I can get, but I'm not going to stop. And eventually, the more and more you do that, you begin to stand with sinners and then you begin to sit and you make your home there. It's this gradual descent. Think about how every sin begins. When we walk away from the Lord, think about how it all begins. Nobody ever wakes up one day with a sudden desire for murder. Nobody wakes up one day with a sudden desire for adultery. Thank you, Peter. Nobody wakes up one day for a sudden desire for adultery or greed or pride. It starts with small, unchecked thoughts and behaviors. Having an affair always starts with small, unchecked thoughts. It begins as a seemingly harmless conversation, and it escalates from there. Addiction is the same way. First, you try it just once, and you promise yourself you're never going to do it again. And eventually, you find yourself trapped in addiction. I said this during our series in Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 3 is uh, compromise is the beginning of adultery. Compromise is the beginning of adultery. It's true in every area of sin. Many people, they like to see how close to the edge they can get. Well, I'm not sinning if I, if I don't actually, if I don't say this or I don't do this or I don't go there. I'm not actually sinning yet, but they want to see how close to the fire they can get without, without being burned. But that's the beginning of it. That's compromise. And compromise is just the beginning of the gradual descent 
into complete disobedience and walking away from God. The three characters that we see in verse 1 also reveal a, pro- a progression uh, of, of descent into a life of evil. The first word is the word wicked. And, and that Hebrew word, it means those who have been judged or found guilty in a court of law. And the next word that we see is the word sinners. And the difference between wicked and sinners is that uh, the wicked, you know, have done something wrong. They've been found guilty. But a sinner is, is almost like a, a serial offender. They, they're a career criminal. They do wrong over and over and over and over again. And the last word that we see is the word mockers. And this is someone who has completely uh, involved themselves into a life of sin. And they mock those who live righteously. It's, it's the farthest you can go. And so this, this psalm depicts this gradual descent into sin. Here's the wisdom in this verse. It's that your relationships can powerfully influence your direction in life. Let me see it, say it this way. Your friends impact your fate. Your company can be a compass. Your friends will either point you in the way of the righteous or your friends will point you in the way of the wicked that leads to destruction. Who you surround yourself with is important. The relationships that you allow in your life will influence you one way or another. So it's important to choose people in our life that are going to point us down the way of the righteous. Point us towards God, towards a deeper relationship with Jesus. Who are your closest influencers? Who do you allow to speak into your life? What does their life look like? Do they love Jesus? Do they obey his word wholeheartedly? So the first one was, I am blessed when I stay away from evil. The second one is a little bit more lighthearted. It's this, I am blessed when I meditate on God's word. I love this, I love this verse. When I meditate on God's word, the Bible's definition of meditation is very different from our modern sense or our modern idea on the word meditation. Uh, and, our, and today's uh, Various forms of meditation, people practice um, the Eastern techniques where it's all about emptying your mind. It's all about clearing your head, emptying your thoughts, and just being one with the universe, right? But that's not what the ancient Hebrews, that's not what the Jews practice. The Bible's, uh, the, the Bible's definition of meditation is actually to fill your mind with the word of God, not to empty it but to fill your mind with scripture. And the Jews had a practice of meditating that involved filling your mind with God's word by reciting scripture out loud in a low droning voice. So they would, they would recite scripture out loud with this low droning voice. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but when I read scripture in my head, you know, there's, I'll read like a paragraph and I'll realize that I didn't even comprehend the last paragraph so I started at the top of the paragraph and eventually I'm reading the same paragraph for like five minutes because I'm not comprehending it. I'm getting distracted. <laughs> but when I read it out loud, it has a way of breaking through the noise in my head and I can focus more, I can meditate more on God's word. The Hebrew word for meditate is the word haga. Everybody say that with me. Haga, really low, haga. It, it also means to moan or to growl. Haga. Haga. This word's actually an onomatopoeia, like moo or boom or click. The word actually sounds like what it's supposed to represent. The ancient Jews, they would meditate by reading scripture in, a, in this low, haga, droning voice. Most people would say uh, they meditate, oh, excuse me. Uh, most people 
would say that they meditate more on the things that they lack. I think if we were really honest with ourselves, I think I tend to, to, to meditate more on the things that I don't have rather than the blessings that God has given me. What things do you meditate on during the day? What are, you, what are the things that roll through your mind over and over again? For me, I, I think about church, like, all the time. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about this community. I'm worried. I'm stressing about my kids. I'm worried about my, uh, my, the spiritual development of my kids. Are my kids growing up with enough Bible? Are they going to follow Jesus when they get older? I, I stress about being successful and making money and taking care of my family. I focus more on the things that I lack but we're called to meditate on the word of God and the blessings that he has for our life. When you meditate on scripture, you're saturating your mind with its truth. And this is important because Ephesians 6, it talks about the word of God is what? It's a sword, right? It's a weapon. The word of God is a weapon. And we use it to combat the lies of the enemy Jesus, when he was led into the wilderness by the, to be tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, uh, when the devil told Jesus to turn this stone into bread, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. He used it as a weapon. It saturated his heart and his mind so that he could use it to combat the lies of the enemy. And when the devil told Jesus to cast himself off a cliff or to bow down and worship him, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6. Here's where it comes into play for us. We just went through, my wife and I just led a, a Bible study all about uh, getting control over your thoughts. And, and, and it's about just your, the, the, your life and your mind. And she mentioned in one of the sessions that everything, all the lies that the devil tries to throw at you, they all essentially boil down to three things. Three essential things. And it's, it's very interesting when I think about all the lies that I've believed over my life or every discouraging word that I've ever believed all my life, I can trace it back to one of these three things. The first one is that you are worthless. The devil wants you to believe that you are worthless. The second thing is that you are unlovable. He wants you to think that nobody can love you. You've done too many bad things. And the third thing is that you're helpless. He wants you to believe that you are helpless. You, you don't have control over your life. But when the devil comes and says that you are worthless, you can say, Psalms 139, 14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am not worthless. When the devil comes and says that you are unlovable, you can say, Psalms 117, 2, great is his love towards me, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And when the devil comes and says that you are helpless, you can say Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? It help, it, my help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Today, we need God's truth more than any other time. We need it to fill our minds. And for the next 90 days, our church is going to read through these 150 psalms together. And I would encourage you um, to pick up a reading plan in the lobby as you leave, or you can find it on our website. There's both a, there's a downloadable version there, or there's, a, there's an online version. If you look it up with your phone, you can actually just click on the verse, and it'll take you straight to it. Uh, but join in with us for these 90 days as we read through all, all of the psalms, because the goal here is for these words— and this music from heaven to saturate our hearts, to fill us up. 
Even, you know, even if, if it's just a few minutes a day, don't get discouraged when you miss a day and you think, oh, no, I, I missed a whole seven days. Now I got so much catching up to do. Don't do that to yourself. Just start from the current day. Keep going with us. Keep tracking with us. This isn't, this isn't to, to bog you down. This isn't to weigh you down with more reading. It's supposed to refresh you and bring you to life this summer. Allow God to speak into your heart as you meditate on the word of God with the rest of us this summer. If you choose to meditate on God's word, he promises three things to us. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. God promises these things if you meditate on his word. He promises that you will be planted beside God's life-giving power. I am planted beside God's life-giving power. Water is the lifeblood of everything. You can't survive without it. Cities are built around it. Produce can't grow without it. I don't have to tell this to a, a room full of farmers, right? I just got done talking over there to, to some farmers here saying, we need some rain, we need some water. Water gives life to everything. And in John chapter 4, Jesus tells a Samaritan woman that the Holy Spirit is this life-giving water. He sustains us. The Holy Spirit nourishes us. He refreshes us. He causes us to grow into maturity. And when you meditate on God's word, the Holy Spirit fills your life and nourishes you and, and refreshes you. And it's this life that you need when you wake up. Every morning when I wake up, I need God's life-giving power just to be a good father, just to be a good husband. To do what I'm called to do, I need the Holy Spirit in my life. The psalmist also says that we will be planted by this life-giving water. And this is a passive term, everybody. This describes a master gardener who knows exactly where you need to be and exactly how much water and light. He knows exactly what you need. And this master gardener is going to plant you exactly where you need to be in life for you to be nourished and for you to flourish in life. My wife is so good at taking care of plants. And I don't know how she does it because one time I asked if I could take one of our house plants to my office and I killed it. And, and I brought it back and she goes, what did you do to my plant? And I said, I'm sorry. And guess what? She brought it back to life. She gave it the just amount of water that it needed. Maybe I wasn't watering it enough. Maybe I was watering it too much. I don't know what I was doing. But she gave it exactly what she needed and she moved it into a place with better lighting and that plant started coming back to life. God knows exactly what you need. He is the master gardener that we can trust with our lives. And the Holy Spirit is that water that our roots soak up. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, when we meditate on the word of God, begins to saturate our hearts and our minds. He promises to give you God's life-giving power when you meditate on his word. The second promise is this. God promises that our lives will be productive, that they will bear fruit God promises that our lives will bear fruit when we delight in his word, word. When my family, we used to live in Tacoma, and we had lots of fruit trees in our backyard, but one of our, our entire family, our favorite fruit tree was this peach tree that we had. And every year, we had to support the trunk because when those peaches were ripe, the weight of that tree was bending that tree over where the trunk looked like it was about to snap. And so we'd have to support this trunk of the tree uh, to, to combat the weight of the fruit that it was bearing. It was a fruitful tree. I loved that peach tree. It was, those were some of the best peaches I've ever had in my life. But I want my life to mean something. 
I want my life to be fruitful. How many of you want your life to be fruitful? You want to be productive in every season of your life. What good is a follower of Jesus if they aren't productive? And Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45, it says this, that no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good that is stored up in his heart. And when we meditate on God's word, we're storing it up in our heart. I want my mouth to speak the truth that I have stored up in my heart, that I have allowed the Holy Spirit to to water and to nourish and to saturate inside of me. I want my life to be productive. I want it to be fruitful in every area I touch. And when I'm a father, when I'm a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, as a mentor, as a son, I want to flourish. I want to be productive in every area of my life. And the last promise that is given to us is this. If you meditate on God's word, I will be prosperous in everything. I will be prosperous in everything. Those that meditate on God's word and delight in the law will prosper, not in some things, not in some areas, but God's word says that in everything, he prospers. In our marriages, he prospers, she prospers. In our careers, she prospers. In her friendships, parenting, finances, God's word provides the wisdom that we need to prosper in every area of our life. Pastor, can that really be true? Are you, are you telling me that if I saturate my soul, if I saturate my heart with the word of God, then I will prosper in every area of life? Is that what you're telling me? No, that's not what I'm telling you. That's what God's telling you. That's a promise that he gives you, that when you allow God's word to saturate your heart, the Bible says that you will prosper in everything. How can that be true? How does God's word do that? Well, the Bible is filled with wisdom. And I believe that the Bible holds every answer to every question in our life. It holds the key to every area in our life. Do you want to know how to be a better employee? Jesus talks about serving with integrity. He talks about how to serve well, how to be a better employee. Do you want to manage your money well? Did you know that Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven and hell combined? The Bible is full of wisdom how to manage our money. Do you want to be a better father or a better mother, a better husband or a better wife? The Bible holds wisdom in those areas as well. The Bible holds every answer that we have questions to. And God's desire is for those answers and that truth just to fill your life, to fill your heart. At our church, we believe that the word of God, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it is God-breathed. In 2 Timothy verse 3, verse, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I mentioned this last week that we kind of live in this age of deconstruction where a lot of people are, are questioning their faith. And, and every time I, I speak to somebody, and they're typically, a lot of them are around my age. They're, they're in the millennial generation. And a lot of them that I talk to, 
I, I discover that all of the issues that they have with their faith boil down to the authority of Scripture. Is God's word the ultimate authority? Can I trust God's word to lead my life? Or is it some ancient, outdated lifestyle or method or rules that I shouldn't apply to my life? And they question the authority of Scripture, but, 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 but as followers of Jesus, we are called to make God's truth our truth. And the danger is, is when we start venturing out of the, outside of the word of God and trying to define truth for ourselves, this is exactly what Adam and Eve did in Genesis. When God told them, if you eat of the tree, you are going to die. And the devil came and said, mm, did God really say that? Is that truth? Is that, is that what God meant? No, no, no. Adam, Eve, you have an opportunity here to decide for yourself what's good. I mean, look at that fruit. Do you think God would make something so beautiful and tell you not to touch it? Come on. Go ahead, take a bite. And what our world has done is we've decided, you know what? I'm going to make my truth the thing that feels good and the thing that the majority of people in my country and in my culture agree with so I don't have conflict with the majority of people in my life. And when we follow the desires of our heart, and we, when, we, when we follow the leading of our own flesh, we're led astray. That's the path of wickedness. But when we meditate on God's word, and, we, and when we allow God's truth to become our truth, we are led down the path of blessing, the path of righteousness. The Bible is not a bunch of random writings or outdated religious practices or not just simply history. The Bible is living, it's active, and it exists so that we could know God better and live like Him. We need to reconnect with the love of Scripture. I believe that, uh, that, that God is raising up a generation in this country that adores the Word of God, that loves Scripture, that loves that loves the words of Jesus. And I think that we can become discouraged at times when we see the path that many people are taking, but, but we need to believe that God is placing a passion in hearts. And it begins when we start, to, to, when we start in small steps, we start in small increments, just like what we're going to be doing in the next 90 days when you read Scripture and you feel that life-giving power. You go, man, that felt good. It was only five minutes of my day, but it just nourished me. It refreshed me. I'm going to keep going with this. And you begin to invest your life into God's word, and he fills you up. I believe that God wants us to reconnect with his word, to delight in it, to meditate, it, um, to meditate on it. And I also believe that God wants to reconnect us as a church with, with the sacrifice that Jesus made. I, I, think, that, I think that the blood and, and sacrifice of Jesus Christ needs to be the forefront. It needs to be the centerpiece of the church. His word and his death and resurrection need to be the centerpiece of the church and what we, what we pursue, what we focus on. So this morning, hopefully you have your communion cups with you. We're gonna take communion together. And if you're watching online, you can grab uh, whatever you have at home, if it's juice and bread, or, or we want you just to, to be a part of it with us. But I encourage you to, uh, to be a part of communion with us this Sunday. What you hold, if you're, if you're new to communion, if you're new to church, I mean, 
explain this for you a little bit. What you have in your hand are two elements. There's this cracker. It represents bread or the body of Christ. And there's this cup of grape juice. It's supposed to represent wine or the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. And uh, before Jesus went to the cross, he shared a meal with his disciples. And he broke bread with them and he drank from a cup with them. And he looked at them and he said, this bread that you hold in my hand is my body that is broken for you. And he said, do this, this act that we're doing together this morning. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And when we take communion, we are realigning ourselves with the sacrifice of Jesus. We are once again uniting ourselves with, with, the, with the blood that he spilled and recognizing that I need his forgiveness. I need that grace on my life fresh every single day. I can't live without it. And for those of you whose bodies are broken and, and you need healing, this, his body was broken so that your life could experience wholeness. Isaiah 53 says that he was bruised for our transgressions. He was, he was beaten for our iniquities. By his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. And so this morning as we take communion, I just ask that you would have a moment with the Lord. Just, uh, I invite you to close your eyes, and I'm going to pray over all of us, and we're going to take this together. Jesus, thank you so much for your body that was broken for us. And I pray for every single person who's watching online or in this room today whose body aches and whose body hurts and whose heart is broken, whose relationships are shattered, Jesus, you broke your body so that our lives could experience wholeness in every area of life. God, we thank you that your sacrifice was enough, that there is nothing too great for you to handle. There is nothing too far out of your reach to put back together. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are in the business of restoration. You are in the business of healing. You love it and you are good at it and you love your children. So Jesus, as we take uh, this, this bread this morning. We thank you and we remember you in Jesus' name. Let's take this together, church. God, I thank you for the cup, for the blood that was shed for my sins. And God, I realize that I can't do this on my own, that I've tried to pray more, I've tried to read the Bible more, I've tried to be a better person, and it all falls short. Because your word says that all far, fall short of God's glory. Father, I need the righteousness of your son, Jesus. I need to be cleansed once again, and I need need that forgiveness. I need a fresh start. I would just pray for anybody who's in this room who have come this morning, and you've, you've been away from the Lord for some time. You've walked away. Maybe you've never experienced a relationship with God, and God wants to encounter you this morning. He wants you to know that his sacrifice was for you as an individual. It was for you personally. He died for you. Knowing everything that you would commit, everything that you would do in your life, he still paid the price. And so, Jesus, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be given a clean slate once again. We thank you for the blood and the forgiveness of our sins, and we drink this in remembrance of you. Let's take this together, church. Would you stand with me? Stand with me, church, once you're done with your cup. I want to bless you. Father, I thank you for this body of believers, and I thank you that you have equipped us with your word. I pray that you would continue to encourage us and fill us up and give us the, uh, the desire and the delight in your word as we read through the Psalms today. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said...
Amen. We'll see you next week for Psalm 23.